Well, we are just about finished with Paul's letter to the Philippians. Today's passage is well-known. It's probably one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, but we'll see that actually it's most of the time, if not all the time, uh, taken out of context, Uh, but it's still well-known and you will well know it. Uh, If you will turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, again, we're almost at the end. Uh, We're going to be, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 10 through 20, but this morning we're going to be looking only at verses 10 through 13. Uh, but uh, we're, So we're going to focus on 10 through 13, but 10 through 20 fills in a little bit of, of what's going on here. If you have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to not only follow along as I read, but keep it open because we'll be looking at specific words and phrases. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, didn't bring one with you this morning, but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath that seat, and you'll find our passage on page 982. It says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has waited until now, really, to thank, uh, if you will, the Philippians for their gift. We know from earlier in the letter that a man named Epaphroditus, who was a member of the church of Philippi, had traveled some, well, Uh, Scholars say that depending on the route that would have been taken, uh, Epaphroditus would have gone over land and sea anywhere from 700 to 1,200 miles to visit the Apostle Paul in prison and to bring him this gift. And we know from earlier in the letter that when Epaphroditus came with his gift, he got sick while he was there and, and almost died. Uh, So you can imagine the kind of trauma that Paul would have been put through. In fact, he even says that it would have had Epaphroditus died, it just would have been sorrow upon sorrow that he's already feeling, having been locked up in prison. And we can see here in verse 10 
how much he says he rejoiced in seeing Epaphroditus. And I don't think that we really understand, uh, maybe, maybe we can get a glimpse of it in our own life, but, but what Paul was facing, the kind of situation he was in, and the kind of joy that he no doubt would have received when Epaphroditus showed up. Last week, I was uh, listening to Pastor Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He was sharing with uh, me and some other pastors that just recently he had been in Rome. And uh, when he was visiting Rome, he, one of the things he wanted to see was the prison that Paul was in. And so uh, they give tours there of these prisons. And apparently there are two prisons that archaeologists believe uh, almost certainly one of those was the prison that Paul stayed in. And Mark said that, that it was like going into a dungeon. He said this prison was, both of them were, he had to keep going down further and further kind of into the ground and uh, finally uh, walked into this stone dungeon that, uh, that just would have been horrific uh, place to be in. And Roman prisons were not like our own. Uh, we, prison is bad enough now, but in Rome, prisoners were thought of essentially as garbage. Uh, human beings often were thought of as garbage if they weren't the right kind of human beings, and prisoners certainly were outcast, and in prison, you were left to die. Uh, there were no meals given to you, there were no, uh, there's no linen service, no beds, no blankets, uh, no TV, nothing. You were thrown in prison and you were left there to rot and die. If you got a fever, that was on you. If you were freezing cold at night, that was on you. If you starved to death, that was on you. Any supplies or any help that you might be given in prison had to be brought in from the outside, from family or friends. Rome didn't care about you. And so think about it. If Paul had gone into this prison in Rome, and on the day that he was put into that prison, Epaphroditus would have left that day, Paul would have been in that cell for a minimum of six weeks. You imagine being in a place like that for six weeks. Uh, waiting for some kind of help and supplies, at least from this church. And if it was hard going, if the conditions were rough, it could have taken Epaphroditus three months to get there. There were no internet, no phones, no email, no texts. Epaphroditus couldn't text Paul and say, hey, I'm almost there. Uh, don't worry, I'm, I, I've, you know, I, I held up a little bit, but I'll be there shortly. There's, there's no way for Paul to even know that anyone is coming at all with anything for him. And in those days, he wasn't the Apostle Paul as we know him today. Now you go to Rome and you say, hey, I'd like to go see the Apostle Paul's uh, prison, and there are tour guides that will lead you there. Then he was just another prisoner tossed aside. So Epaphroditus, when he entered the city of Rome, no doubt had to take some time to even find out where Paul was and search for him. Two years later, Paul would write another letter from a Roman prison called 2 Timothy, 
And when you read 2 Timothy, you can just see, I mean, Paul is awaiting his execution. He knows it's coming. He knows now there's no getting out. He's run the race. He's kept the faith. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, who is his disciple, uh, who he is praying is going to carry on his ministry. And just, you hear the pain and, and the sorrow in Paul's words. 2 Timothy is a very touching letter. And even in this section, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, Paul's speaking to Timothy in this letter. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. This is a man who, who has nothing. This is a man in, in 2 Timothy, when he's, he's writing, he's had everything stripped from him. And he knows he's going to die. And he says this. He says, but may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus. One man, he said, he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. And when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly until he found me. That is, that is a man who loved the Apostle Paul. When everyone else was ashamed of Paul, due to persecution and running the other way. This man went to Rome, and he not only was not ashamed of Paul, but he searched in every prison he could find until he found Paul. I think one of the things that, that we need to remember, especially uh, us in the American church, is what Hebrews 13 tells us. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That's one of the reasons when we do our pastoral prayers here that we often will pray for the persecuted church around the world. It's one of the reasons why Michelle and I order um, uh, calendars and, and other things from uh, an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs because uh, they highlight for us and remind us that right now in countries like North Korea, and China and Nigeria, our brothers and sisters are suffering greatly. They're suffering like these first Christians did. And Paul is grateful that the Philippians remembered him. He said, I rejoiced greatly. I rejoiced. And look at what he rejoices in the Lord. I'm sure he thanked Epaphroditus. No doubt, but when I think about the letter that I would send to someone, I mean, just think about the text that you send. You receive something right away, you send an immediate thank you, or hey, that was funny, I appreciate what you said. Paul is always bringing the Lord in. His thanks is, is kind of, I hate to even use the word roundabout, but it's kind of a roundabout way of thanking them because he thanks and rejoices in the Lord that they remembered he always brings God's sovereignty in. He knows that any gift that ever comes to him is from the hand of God, even if brought by secondary means like Epaphroditus and the Philippians. And he even says here, and, and even one of the guys in the men's study on Tuesday said, wow, this almost sounds like he's, he's sticking it to him," because Paul says, I rejoice greatly that at length, or finally, something like that, you have revived your concern for me. Sounds like, you know, he might be saying, yeah, it took you a while. 
you guys did care for me, and now I've been languishing in prison, and, you know, I'm glad finally that your concern for me revived a little bit. But it's almost like he knows they might take it that way, and so he follows up with the next sentence of, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. How would, we, how would he have even known that? I'm sure it was Epaphroditus who shared that with him. So here Epaphroditus shows up. Who knows how long Paul's been waiting for these supplies, maybe even, you know, starving to death. And Epaphroditus finally shows up and says, Paul, hey, I'm sorry it took so long. We, we have been concerned about you. We, I just, we ran into some snags. And Paul, rather than writing to them and saying, look, hey, do you, do you care about my ministry? I'm the Apostle Paul. I've got churches to plant. I've got ministry to do. And here you're forgetting about me? No. He, he says, look, in such a gentle and loving way, guys, I got the gift. I thank God for the gift. I know you were always concerned for me, and I know things just got in the way. Don't worry about it. Paul is living according to his own theology. He's practicing what he preaches. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So Paul says, guys, thank you. I rejoice in the Lord for your gift. And then he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, what does that mean? Because again, when you first read that statement, not that I'm speaking of being in need, is he saying, I wasn't really in need of anything because I already had plenty of supplies, or I wasn't speaking of being in need because another church had already brought things to me, and so really I was totally fine. I guess so. He could be. I mean, maybe he has been brought things from other churches. I'm not sure. But I don't think so because of what he says next. See, one Old Testament scholar or one New Testament scholar, he, he translates Paul's statement here a little bit differently. Not, not, he's not saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, but this guy translates it as, I don't have a sense of needing anything. I don't have a sense of needing anything. And why do I think that's a better way of thinking of this? It's because of the four. That for after the comma is like because, and he doesn't say because I already have plenty. He doesn't say not that I'm saying I'm in need because other churches have brought me things. He says because I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. So it's almost like with that qualifying statement, it almost seems like Paul is saying, I was in great need. I did need things. It is bad in here. But my contentment is not based on my circumstances. Now, when I read this statement, my contentment is not based in my circumstances, I ask, how is that possible? Because... When I think of the word contentment, 
I, I think when I, if I were to like have a picture drawn of contentment, it's like Thanksgiving evening after the dinner. That's contentment. Because why? Because you've gotten everything you could ever want. You, you ate the best meal you, you ate all year. You had as much of it as you wanted. And you also had great time with your family, usually extended family. You also maybe spent time with friends. Maybe you got to watch a good football game. It's like I couldn't ask for anything more. That's what contentment is. The Oxford uh, Dictionary says contentment is happiness and satisfaction often because you have everything you need. I mean, it even says that. And so Paul, he seems to be saying something totally different. He's saying, look, even though I truly had great needs, I had no sense of being in great need because I tent in any situation. Well, how? How could he be truly content in any situation? Well, notice it's not because he was born that way. He doesn't have some special ability to have contentment. He says, I had to learn it. I had to learn contentment. And learning, of course, this word, uh, learn, is the same way we use the word learn. It can be used one of two ways. It can either mean you gain knowledge through instruction or you come to a realization by experience. Now, obviously, if we just read verse 12, we know which way Paul is talking. He didn't learn contentment in all circumstances by reading something. It wasn't through intense study of the Old Testament. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul here basically Sounds like he summarizes essentially his entire life. And he breaks his life circumstances up into extremes. He says, look, there have been times in my life when I have abounded. There have been times in my life when I have had everything I wanted. I felt totally full. Uh, I had all the money that I needed. I had the comfort that I needed. I had the security that I needed. All of these things attended to me. And I'm sure there were times in Paul's life as a Christian, as an apostle, that that was true. We know, for, for instance, when we just read of his experience in Philippi, when that church got started, the first convert was Lydia. And Lydia apparently was a wealthy woman, and probably she you know, welcomed him. We know she welcomed him and, uh, into her home and, and that they feasted and all of these things. And he probably, that's one example of when he had an abundance. I'm sure, though, when Paul thinks over his entire life, no doubt his largest time of abundance, if you will, materially speaking, would have been before he even came to Christ. As a Pharisee, Paul had it all, essentially. I mean, Paul was the top scholar under the top teacher. He was revered. He was looked up to. He had a bright future ahead of him as a Pharisee. But notice here that Paul says, interestingly, that even in times of abundance and plenty, he has had to learn to be contented. 
He didn't say, I've learned to be content in times of want and need. Yes, he gets to that. But he says, I have learned contentment in times of abundance, when I haven't really needed for anything. And if you think about it, what I mean, just think of your own life. I don't know all of you, I don't know all of your backgrounds, but I can say in my life, in the country I've grown up in, in the era that I've grown up in, I think pretty much, if I'm being honest, my entire life has been a life of abundance and plenty. There have been instances in my life when maybe, uh, you know, on a camping trip or something like that, when I've wanted for something. But largely speaking, my entire life has been a life of abundance. I don't remember a time of really needing desperately something to live on. And yet, I can think of countless times when I have not been content with my life and my situation. I mean, I was just thinking about it this week. You know, I, <clears throat> I think so often the more we get, the less content we are with what we have. Just think of, you know, these, I mean, every time, I don't know, those of you who who's years ago, like in the 90s, watched that behind the music thing on VH1, I used to love those things, but you know, like, it was always about some rock band or something like that, and you always saw, like, they'd reach some crest of stardom where, like, they kind of had whatever they wanted, and then tragedy was right around the corner. Yeah, it's like every time, because somehow they always wanted just a little bit more, and then that's when their life went off the rails. They were never just totally content with where they were. I remember, you know, this past summer on my sabbatical, it was prayed about. Thank you, Tim. Uh, but during our sabbatical, we went to Yellowstone, and we had just been in Grand Teton. I, I've never been in a more beautiful place in my life than Grand Teton. Everywhere I looked, it was like a postcard. And then we go to Yellowstone, and we're having an amazing time there. I'm on sabbatical. I don't have to work. I'm with my family. I mean, if there's ever been a time when you'd think I'd be totally happy and content, it would be there. But when we show up at the RV park that night to get, you know, Michelle found a nice RV that we could stay in in this RV park, and I complained because the RV was kind of small and my bed was a little cramped. I wasn't content. I wanted that guy's RV. There were all these huge RVs around us. (laughs) And our RV was really little and old. It was like a 70s RV. And there were all these like 2020s around us. And, and, and so that's the thing. Paul said, look, uh, I had to learn to be content even in abundance. But I think for Paul, far more frequent were the times that he was brought low when he had to face hunger and when he had to face need. I mean, even when Paul is called to follow the Lord, remember what was said about him? Really, it's amazing. I mean, when Paul is converted and when he is first called to be an apostle and sent on this mission, what's said about him? Acts 9, the Lord says to him, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is my chosen instrument. Out of all the world, I've chosen him to carry my name and my message to the whole world. And then the next sentence says this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
Paul's call and his, almost his purpose in life was to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. How much did he suffer? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, listen to this list. Far more imprisonments I've been in. Countless beatings. I mean, think of your own life. Have you been beaten once? I mean, he's had countless beatings, and it doesn't, I mean, it gets way worse. Countless beatings, often near death, my beatings have been so bad. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why would they beat someone with 39 lashes? Because 40 could kill them. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Right after he has the nice meal with Lydia and has that time of abundance, he's beaten with rods and thrown in prison in Philippi. So obviously, Paul has had times when he has been brought low. And this word brought low, it doesn't just mean needing material goods. Brought low isn't like just the opposite of abundance. Being brought low, that word carries with it the idea of being humiliated, of being shamed, of losing all of your status. Just think of it. Five times Paul was beaten by those he used to call his brothers. He was beaten by his own people. He was beaten by those who used to revere him and look up to him and come to him for advice. It wasn't just that, that they rejected him and walked away. That's hard enough when you have a, a close friend who, who doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. They stripped him down and beat him to near death five times. Paul carried a message in carrying the gospel he carried a message that was that he, by his own words, says is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. That was Paul's job. Paul's job was to carry around a message that everyone is going to hate. That there wouldn't be a group. I mean, you have two groups, Jews and Gentile. That covers everybody. And in the whole world, everyone is going to find something wrong with the message that I'm telling you to bring to them, Paul. That was his job. Can you imagine that? The gospel made him an enemy of everyone. Paul had exchanged this status and the security as a Pharisee for the humiliation of being the apostle of Christ Jesus. But he describes all of it as a learning experience. It's all a learning experience. He says, in all of these experiences, God has taught me how to be content in the midst of any and all circumstance. He said, I have learned the secret 
of contentment. And what is it? Well, look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And again, this is the verse that is pulled out of context, probably, I don't know if it's more than any other Bible verse. But so often you hear people, I think one of the guys at the men's study said Evander Holyfield wrote that verse on his gloves before taking on, you know, winning the championship in, in boxing or something. Maybe he lost, I don't know. I don't know which, which fight that was, but. A lot of people pull this verse out. And why do they pull it out? Well, well, what they're saying when they pull this verse out is they're saying, somehow, by God's grace or by God's power, I can accomplish whatever I put my mind to. I can do whatever I want. Somehow, God's going to help me to do this, to win this championship or to get this job or, or somehow overcome this obstacle. That's completely the opposite of what Paul is talking about. The all things here, half of the all things are horrible situations. He's saying, I can go through all of these things through him who strengthens me. That's what he's talking about. I mean, if, if, if an athlete wanted to use this verse and use it correctly, he, he wouldn't be saying, by God's strength, I know I can win the championship. What he, what he would be saying is, by God's strength, I can be satisfied with winning the championship or going winless. By God's strength, I can be satisfied by winning the MVP or getting kicked off the team. That's what he would be saying. Now, the word content that Paul keeps using was actually used by Stoic philosophers of his day. And that word, generally speaking, meant self-reliance, self-supporting, independent of others. One New Testament scholar says this, the Stoic doctrine was that a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. But it's interesting how Paul, just like last week, when he used those Greco-Roman words to kind of put a biblical twist on them, I think he's doing the same thing here. He's using this word contentment, which generally speaking, used by the Stoics of the day, meant I'm going to make it through by my own effort, and he completely twists it and says, I am content not by my own reliance, not by my own effort, but by relying on Christ alone. I'm content not by my reliance, but on God's all-sufficient power. Paul learned, in other words, no matter what his outward circumstances, through going through those circumstances and having the Holy Spirit again and again and again, he eventually learned to rely on the truly self-reliant one. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, he probably, I mean, he's, he's written maybe the best book on contentment that there's ever been written. Uh, it's based on, the, on these verses, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He calls it a rare jewel. Why? Because listen to how he defines contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, 
inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I don't know how many times I've done that in my life. And I think it's something that you learn through going through these circumstances. Paul didn't strengthen himself. He was strengthened by the Spirit of God. It's a rare jewel. I know for me, contentment, you know, when, when it's bad, I'm discontented that it's not good. And when it's good, I'm discontented that it's not better. I mean, I grew up. My, the first TV I can recollect us having was, I, I don't even know if it was color. It may have been. But I, I know I could hardly watch it because of the fuzz and, and we had to constantly move this antenna around, and, and we had, I think, foil on the, on the antenna, and you had, like, this dial that you would turn, and it had, like, 13 channels, like, 10 of which didn't work. And, and then you had really bad 70s shows to watch, like Gilligan's Island and stuff. I mean, now, I own, I think it's a 4K TV, it's a high-def TV, and I've... By, by, by the grace of others, friends of mine, I have like three uh, streaming services, none of which I pay for because they've been shared with me. And so I've got endless channels to watch, and yet when I go into a store and I see some gigantic screen that has like Atmos and I don't even know what this stuff is called, and I see how crystal clear that is compared to my stupid little 4K, I'm discontented again. And I don't even watch TV that much. Is that you this morning? Are you discontented with life? Are you discontented with your job or with your spouse? Are you discontented with your singleness? Are you discontented with your prayer life? or with your car, or with your house? Are you discontented with your children, or with your body, or with your looks? Are you discontented with your health and your age? Friends, the only place that you will find true contentment is in Jesus Christ. St. Augustine, who spent his youth restlessly discontented, seeking contentment in learning and women. In his confessions, he wrote, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The secret of contentment is not in you. It wasn't in Paul. The secret of contentment is not found in strengthening yourself, but being strengthened in any and all circumstances by the one who alone can give you the strength to do it. Roughly two years after he wrote the letter to the Philippians, again, Paul wrote 2 Timothy, and again, as I mentioned earlier, when he wrote 2 Timothy, he was facing certain execution. He had lost everything. He had been abandoned by all of his friends. He had lost his ministry. He was going to lose his life. 
And even in that dire circumstance, you can see how he has found his rest in Christ alone. Because he says in here, you see, all of this has happened to me, but I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. What an amazing statement. Brothers and sisters, even when he had lost everything, he suffered what he suffered because he was thinking of you. As he languished in that prison, he said, I'm doing this for the elect. I'm doing this who will want, for those who will one day come to faith in Christ. That's why I'm suffering. And that's why, brothers and sisters, I can't wait until I see the Apostle Paul one day. Because I want to walk up to him in glory and give him a hug and say, thank you for suffering for me. But you know, he wasn't the only one who started out with abundance and was brought low. In fact, the only other time Paul uses that word brought low, he uses it in chapter 2 of Christ. But when Paul says it of himself, that I have been brought low, he uses it as a passive. It wasn't my choice. If I could choose, I, I, wouldn't, I would rather have not been brought low. I would rather have not been ashamed. I would rather have not lost my status. I was brought low by the sovereignty of God and by others' choices. But when he uses it of Christ in chapter 2, he says that Christ made himself low. See, in heaven, no one could have touched him. And if Paul began life uh, being adored and worshipped and in perfect security as a Pharisee, think of where Christ began. In eternal blessedness with the Father and Spirit in perfect happiness. No one could have brought him low. He made himself low. And whereas Paul brought a message that was hated by everyone, Jesus was the message that was hated by everyone. Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Romans who nailed him to the cross. Think of what Jesus went through to be humiliated, to be whipped, to be punched, to be spit upon, to have his beard ripped out, to be stripped of all dignity, to be mocked as he hung on the cross. And that's why, brothers and sisters, when I think of what Jesus exchanged for me, I can't wait to see him in glory. 
even more than I can't wait to see Paul. Only I think when I see him, I'm not going to give him a hug. I'm going to fall at his feet. And I'm going to say, thank you. For suffering for me. Brothers and sisters, no matter what your present circumstances, I pray that you find your contentment in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that we got to see here, but we thank you more than anything of your word made flesh and what he did for us. May we never take it for granted, Father, and may we be content with the life that you have given to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.